If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out GuardianVets.com now. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We are going to jump into the conversation with Josh Beisman here in a second. But before we do, we're going to take a quick pause, hit the sponsors, and we'll be right back. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to a hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talk to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. So Josh is the co founder of Flourish Veterinary Consulting. He was a early podcast guest on episode number 25. I looked, Josh, this has been a minute. So January 13th, 2020. And it's interesting because there's been a handful of things that have happened since then. But I'm really excited to have you back on the show and discussing some of the updates of of where Flourish has been, what's going on and some of the, the cool things that you're working on. But for those that maybe don't know or haven't listened, and I would encourage them to go back quick overview of Flourish, and then tell me a little bit about what has changed business-wise since January of 2020, which is a lot, I'm sure. Yeah, like the whole world has changed, right? First of all, Isaiah, I'm delighted to be back on the show. It's like a true honor to feel like I'm a return guest, so I must have made at least somewhat of a positive impression on you last time, so that's good to hear. Yeah, Flourish has been kind of rocking and rolling. The last time we spoke, we were really starting to ramp up, getting out there on the speaking circuit, doing a lot of consulting, running workshops with folks. And then, of course, as everybody knows, March of 2020, the world turned upside down. And I actually, like many others in business, I really thought that my young company was just going to fold, but it actually turned out to be quite the opposite. Flourish has really kind of taken off in the last couple of years. We actually, just last week, we hired our first two employees, a 
full-time positive change agent to kind of learn about how to bring the science of positive psychology to the veterinary space and a director of operations. So we're expanding. So things are going really well. It's exciting times. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that I wanted to get into as well as knowing a little, you know, inside baseball that I knew that you had made some hires and were growing, which is super exciting. But you talked about it a little bit. There was a lot of different businesses and and areas of the economy that were really impacted. Veterinary medicine was not one of those during COVID. Now, was it impacted? Yes, but it was an impact of, oh my gosh, we're so busy. There's these changes, things are going on. But what have you seen has been the biggest demand of like the offering that you all provide that's been this kind of growth engine? Because I think ultimately like high level, what you do is a lot of the things that veterinary medicine has been talking about of like, hey, we need to fix these things that are out there. But is there anything that you can put your finger on that's been like, this seems to be what the industry is asking us to do? And maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a great question, Isaiah. There's kind of a few different ways that I feel like it can answer that. So I want to start with, if you don't mind, I'm going to share what the mission of the organization is. So Flourish exists for the sole purpose of taking the science of human thriving. We want to look at like what a lot of the social sciences have identified or things that contribute to human thriving. We want to translate those findings in a way that veterinary organizations can utilize that are actionable so that we can encourage them, coach them, cajole them, guide them, help them cultivate environments that maximize the opportunity for professional thriving in the veterinary community. That's kind of our goal. And so we started that mission four and a half years ago. It's been going on for a while and it was obviously predated COVID by a lot. And then COVID came and first it was this fear and uncertainty. And I mean, I remember, you probably remember too, some of your clients were probably freaking out about, are we going to be able to keep our doors open? Like, is anybody going to come in? And early on, those few weeks were kind of scary and touch and go. I remember a practice that ended up having a sit down where their entire team was like, if we don't find a way to cut payroll by 40%, We're going to have to shut our doors. And then, of course, now we think back on that time and we almost like laugh at it because obviously the exact opposite ended up happening. And so what is the community asked of us? I think that what the community's kind of asked of us is validation and hope. I think that it's been a really, really tough couple of years in the veterinary community in a profession that's already tough prior to all of the challenges of the pandemic and everything that came along with it. But these past couple of years in in particular, I think that we've been stretched and strained and it can be really easy to default to that mindset of, this is an impossible profession and we're in a crisis and things are terrible. But actually what I've seen in the past couple of years is just such an exemplary representation of what it means to be resilient. I mean, if anybody on this earth has been resilient, it's been veterinary professionals thinking about everything that they've endured each and every day. And yet still they go into work and they provide the very best care they can for the patients, clients, and communities that they serve. That's amazing. So I think we've been able to kind of shine a little light on that and show them that we don't need to come and teach you how to be resilient, thriving superheroes, you already have all those tools and let us show you how. And then the other thing that I think has really come of this is that I'm starting to get a sense. I'd like to see it build some more, but I'm starting to get a sense that uh, leaders in the veterinary community are starting to recognize that, you know, we've put a lot of efforts into our businesses. We've put a lot of efforts into our medicine 
it's high time we put effort and intention into the people that make it all happen. And so we're starting to get a lot of practices reaching out to us and say, hey, we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make the environment and culture here as positive and supportive for the people that work here. Can you help us do that? So we're seeing a lot of growth in that area too. And then on that kind of environment and cultivating an environment that allows people to get back to the ability to thrive. You shared a little bit right before we hit record, and maybe this ties in, maybe it doesn't. And if you can be like, hey, Isaiah, I don't think you understood what we were talking about. <laughs> you mentioned that there was a really interesting survey that you all had just launched that is kind of tied to that positive leadership framework, which is then also connected to a book that you've been writing for AHA. But help me understand, and maybe maybe the survey is going to give you some additional answers into that question, but it's like, what is the environment that most of the veterinary professionals out there are looking for that has been lacking where you've seen record profit margins, good growth, really amazing opportunities for legacy practice owners to realize more money than they've ever known what to do with as they've sold their businesses or moved on and young veterinarians starting really creative, cool, interesting practices. But again, I want you to share a little bit about the survey and the book, but then also what is the environment that people are looking for? Because I think, Josh, like you'll talk about it and people will talk about this environment, this environment, this is what, but it's like, what is it that they actually want? Or what is it that is actually the thing that you start to see that change? And then people are excited to be at work and are engaged. Yeah. Great questions. And yes, I'm happy to talk about some of that. So it's interesting because I agree with you. And I think that I was actually one of those people for many, many years who talked about the importance of environment and culture. And I think what I ended up defaulting to more often than not, unintentionally, because I didn't really know any better, was sort of a little bit of a deficit kind of focused view of things. Okay, so a good environment is going to be an environment where people are not overwhelmed, where they're not burnt out, where they're not experiencing compassion fatigue, things of that nature, right? And that obviously is important. I mean, it's important to not be overwhelmed. It's important to have enough time to provide the care that you want to provide to the patients and clients that you see. It's important to not be burnt out. It's important to not have to work so much and so hard all the time that you eventually run out and you've got no fuel left in the tank to do the good, worthy work that you want to do. It's important to not experience compassion fatigue. I mean, you know, the core of what we do is leverage our natural empathy into compassionate response to patients and clients in need. And it's important to be able to continue to do those things. But I was really inspired a few years ago, and it's a big part of what led to Flourish starting by a statement I'm going to sort of loosely reference here. It's not exactly verbatim, but Dr. Martin Seligman, who's kind of one of the founding members of the field of positive psychology, he said something that really stuck with me. The absence of illness is not necessarily wellness. The absence of problems is not necessarily the good. And eliminating things like compassion fatigue and burnout and overwhelm and exhaustion and all of those quote unquote bad things from our profession, that's really important stuff. But getting rid of all those things doesn't necessarily result in a profession that contributes to our sense of well-being and thriving. And I really think that the work that we do in veterinary medicine shouldn't just not make us sick. It should actually make us better. I mean, doing this work should make us feel really good about our lives. And we know that there are things that tend to contribute to that. 
So that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in not as much of the elimination stuff, but what are the things that we can grow? What are the nutrients that when added to the veterinary garden result in flourishing veterinary professionals? So that's the kind of stuff that we want to look at. And looking at all those kinds of things over the last few years and going through the master's program that I went through and applied positive psychology, learning about areas of study like organizational psychology and positive organizational scholarship and positive organizational behavior and positive leadership and all these various areas of pretty rigorous research, it seemed to me that four common themes kept really kind of appearing. It seems that human beings, especially in a work context, or in my particular perspective, through the prism of the work context, maybe not especially, but through the prism of the work context, human beings seem to do really, really well when they feel like they have a voice, when they feel heard, when they feel seen and validated. They seem to do really well when they feel a sense of purpose, when they feel like they matter and what they're doing matters. And they get the experience of what we call meaningfulness, which is, you know, that um, lived experience of seeing, really feeling the purposeful, positive contribution of what we do. People tend to do really well when they have a clear path toward accomplishment, achievement, and growth, when they really understand what's expected of them in their roles, when they have a meaningful sense of autonomy of how to achieve those things, and when they know that they've got the tools and resources and support around them to maximize their opportunity for success, they're going to lean into that opportunity and they're going to succeed and gain the benefits of that. And then finally, people seem to do really, really well when they experience genuine, authentic human connectedness. When they feel like the people around them at work, especially the people, quote, in charge of them, like, you know, their boss, their leader, their manager, the hospital owner, actually cares about them as a human being and actually cares about their success. And so, and looking at all these themes, it seemed like, okay, there's four common things here. There's four threads, and I'm a big fan of alliteration. So we put together this framework for positive leadership that we call the four P's of positive leadership. And it's psychological safety, which is in large part based on the research of Dr. Amy Edmondson. It's purpose. That's where this idea of mattering and meaningfulness comes in. It's path, which is that role clarity, autonomy, and resources and tools. And then it's partnership. And partnership is what we like to call the connective tissue of the whole framework, knowing that my leader actually cares about me and cares about my success. I'm not just a conduit to their own success, those kinds of things. So we were approached by AHA a couple of years ago. Hey, we want to write a book or we want to publish a book on positive cultures in veterinary hospitals. And so we talked to them about our framework and they got really excited about it. And so a little over year and a half ago, two years ago, I started writing a book for AHA and uh, just completed the first draft of it last December, submitted it to AHA, it went through a review process. Six expert reviewers looked at it and had really, really great things to say and really helpful suggestions on how to make a pretty good book even better. And so we just went through the first revision phase and now it's going to start the editing phase and hopefully will be published through AHA next year. And so now we've got this framework, right? We've got this book coming out on it. Now we kind of want to look at most of the research that we've pulled from is sort of generalized research. What about in the veterinary space? So today, actually, literally right before I got on this call with you, we launched a survey. It's going out to the entire veterinary community. Anybody who works in veterinary medicine and 
has a boss, has somebody that you report to. Even if you're a boss yourself, you're a practice manager, but there's a hospital owner, great. You're a medical director and you're part of a corporate group, then you've got a regional or district medical director that you report to, great. You're a a CSR, you're a kennel tech, you're a technician, great. You're an associate veterinarian, awesome. If you work in a veterinary hospital and you've got a boss you report to, we want to hear your voice. So we want to look at what are your experiences of these four P's of positive leadership in your hospital and... How satisfied are you working there? And what does it look like for you long-term? Do you plan on staying in that hospital? Do you plan on staying in this profession? How committed do you feel to your organization? All these kinds of outcomes that seem to suggest workplace well-being. We want to look at which of those positive leadership behaviors, if any, seem to predict those things. So then we can go back to leaders in veterinary medicine and be like, hey, This isn't just backed by uh, published research. This is actually backed by data in our profession. You really should be thinking about doing these kinds of things in your hospital if you want an engaged, satisfied, happy team. Yeah, that's incredible. And one of the things that sticks out to me of the four Ps and is part of, I would say, my career path as well and kind of what led me to leave where I was at before and start my own thing was the path piece of just not Mm -hmm. knowing what the future was, right? There was no clarity. It was always kind of like, oh, we'll talk about that. Oh, we'll talk about that. And to me, it's been one of those things that I've been wanting as we've grown and hired people. And now I'm, I guess I'm technically a boss and it's weird because it's like I work with not, you know, they don't work for me. We work together. And it is a weird thing to, to think about that, but making sure that they understand what the roles could be and what the path is and put them in a place where they want to ultimately go into the future. And especially for some of the younger hires that will kind of graduate and see different areas of our business, like what that can be. And also if it's ever outside of us, that's okay. Like I was that person that was somewhere like I liked the job, I think in general, but it wasn't the right fit longer term. And if someone finds out that they are better fit or want to do something completely different outside of us, I want to be able to encourage them to do that as much as that may suck to lose someone that's really good. You have to be able to give them that path to say, this is where your career can go and kind of support them in that. So That's one that sticks out to me for sure there. And it sounds like to me, Isaiah, that you had a lived experience of working somewhere where that path was unclear. I tend to think of imagery. So I picture you like in this job, sitting at your desk, literally on a dirt path, like on a hiking trail, right? And it's thick trees and it's foggy and you literally can't see more than 10 feet ahead of you. And that experience was uncomfortable. It didn't really feel like you were going anywhere maybe, or it's difficult to feel motivated when you don't really know what the next step and the next flag post looks like. And what's really cool to me is what I'm hearing from you is that you took that lived experience and you turned it into your own personal leadership lesson. And now you're like, listen, I'm going to make sure that that people who work with me or for me, however you want to learn it, are not going to have that kind of experience that I had. I'm going to make sure that they really understand where they fit and I understand where they want to fit and I can help them succeed here or help them succeed somewhere else that might be a better fit. That's fantastic. I mean, I applaud you for doing that. And what we want to see is we want to see people learn those kinds of lessons in our profession without having to go through them themselves. So that's why we're trying to share these kinds of things with the community. Yeah. And I think it's easy to talk about that and it's hard to implement it. The other one that stuck out to me was the partnership piece. And so many people are like, oh, well, you need to show them that you care. And it's like, you can't really fake that one. Yeah. You can't really fake that you care about your people. Like, you can read through the BS really, really quickly yes. where 
I struggle with the, Hey, how's your weekend type of thing? Like the real BS talk. Like I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't like it, but I'll have a legitimate real conversation about stuff going on in your life. And I enjoy that. I just don't like the fake, like, Oh, it was great. We did this. We did that. But I know for some people that's super important. So I'll still engage in it. But for me, I'm like, eh, it's surface level. No one really wants to talk about this. It's like how you start a meeting sometimes or internally, if we have a, it's like, no, 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 let's talk about things that are like meaningful that maybe is a more one-on-one conversation. And so that's one that I like, but sometimes I struggle with depending on how someone else likes to do that, where maybe they like the surface level and that's how they feel it. But do you have any thoughts on that or feedback? I do. I do. So what I love about what you're saying, it really speaks to the subjective nature of that particular element. Believing that somebody cares about us has not as much to do with how they genuinely feel about us as much as how they make us feel, right? It's a very subjective experience. And so what's interesting about being in a leadership position, what I'm hearing from you, Isaiah, is you obviously do care about the people around you. It's pretty clear to me that you care a lot about them. You feel like for one way that you show somebody that you care is you take an interest in them. And I don't know, man, I just really struggle with that kind of, to me, it feels a bit trite. It feels a bit forced. I don't know. I'm not the kind of guy who's like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And wants to sit down for 20 minutes and talk about that. And so I worry that people won't think I care about them. Well, the thing is, that's one way to show people that you care about them, but it's not the only way. So what I typically recommend in those kinds of cases You've already got the most important piece in place, Isaiah. You do care. You just haven't found the way that feels authentic and natural to you. So what about sitting down with these people and kind of conducting a little bit of a almost, I don't know, like a partnership interview where you sit down with a team member and you say, hey, listen, it's important to me that you realize that I care about you and I care about your success here. But I'm not going to be the kind of chatty guy who's going to sit around the water cooler and ask you about all the nitty gritty details of your weekend. That just doesn't work for me. And I want it to feel authentic. What are some ways that prior managers or bosses or just people you've worked with have shown you that they care, that they really do care about you? What are some things that you think I could do that would show you that I really care and see what they have to say, you know, explore that with them together. I mean, sometimes just taking an interest in their success at work, taking the time to coach somebody, noticing them, (laughs) making eye contact and saying good morning, saying good night at the end of the day, thinking about them when an interesting project comes up that you know that they got excited about in the past. Those are also things that show people that we care about them that go beyond that forcing yourself to engage in a conversation that you wouldn't normally have. Yeah. I feel like I'm like, hey, Josh, you want to come on the podcast and help coach me through things that (laughs) that I can do better and think through. (laughs) But no, I think actually probably a lot of truth to people that are listening that are in leadership positions that maybe feel that way. And it's interesting, but no, I love that. And one of the other interesting things that is slightly different than most veterinary hospitals as well is we have kind of the remote team. So we have some people that I've actually never met in person, which is kind of wild, but we are all going to get together later this year, which is going to be great. And it's going to be much more of a social thing, but that beside, like it is tricky when you don't have the in-person interactions, like how do you build culture when you're all remote? And I wanted to kind of tailor that and come back to with your team growth and hiring, they aren't all in your local area, if I am understanding correctly. 
And as you went through that in your own personal journey with kind of the hiring process, A, hiring right now is really hard to find good people. And you're seeing this like great exodus, right, from the workforce. How did you go about it? And then how are you thinking of trying to make sure that you're doing a lot of the things internally? And kind of what have you learned through that process? I think that'd be fascinating to hear. Yeah, that's an excellent question. This is a very new process for me. You know, I come from hospital management and ownership prior to doing this work with Flourish. And so I was not special. As a hospital owner, I did the same thing everybody else did. I posted stuff years ago on Craigslist and then on Indeed and those kinds of things. And I would just look at resumes and sort of get a gut feeling about what I thought was a good fit or the right person, or if they misspelled something, maybe I don't want to interview them, those kinds of things. And then I would conduct a 30 to 60 minute in-person interview, and then maybe pay them to do a four hour sort of like shadow working interview kind of thing. And then I'd talk to the team and, hey, what did you think of that person? And then I'd hire somebody. And I probably had about as good a success rate as anybody else. I now understand why. It turns out if you look at the research on just all the different kinds of mental shortcuts that we use and the way that we evolved, we're just not good at hiring. <laughs> Human beings are not built to be really good at reading a resume and a cover letter, conducting an interview, spending a couple hours with somebody, and then determining how they're going to fit into our organization in a month, six months, a year, and 10 years. We're just not good at it. So I started to look at what are some ways that we can get a bit better? And I got really inspired by some stuff that I had read or heard. I can't remember. It may have been in a podcast. Adam Grant. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist. He's an absolute genius. I strongly recommend for anybody who's interested in podcasts, after you're done listening to Isaiah's podcast, then go listen to Work Life by Adam Grant. It's phenomenal. But anyway, Adam Grant talks about how there are some things that do suggest ways to get better at it. You can't get perfect probably, but you can definitely improve the process. And we sort of followed some of those recommendations in our process. So the first thing we did, our director of operations was working for us on a contract basis at this point in time. And so we spent a good couple months working with an HR consultant who specializes in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we talked a lot about biases, not just sort of like racial or gender biases, but just the normal biases that we're built with. For example, subconsciously, we take stock of a human being within about 30 seconds. We sort of start to identify, generally speaking, if we like them or not, based on who knows what's happening subconsciously. So we wanted to try and limit those things as much as possible. We came up with a list of characteristics, like personality traits and values that were really important to us, much less on the skill side and much more on the values and personality side. And we listed those out and then we created a list of questions about those to sort of start to get at some sense of how people felt about those things or how they behaved in those particular areas. For example, we wanted to bring on somebody who had a little bit of an architectural approach, who would be comfortable with a little bit of ambiguity because this new role in our organization, there's going to be some parts of it that are definitely fixed and put into place. And there's going to be a lot of parts of it that are sort of going to evolve as this person grows in the organization. So we needed somebody who was comfortable crafting a little bit of their own role as the organization grew. So how do you measure that? So we had to find ways to do that. We created a job ad specifically around these things, made it very particular, and we posted it in very particular places to try and uh, stick to. We knew we wanted 
somebody from veterinary medicine, somebody who had the lived experience of working in the veterinary space. And so we targeted only veterinary places, like some private Facebook groups. We tried to post through the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association. Unfortunately, there was a timing issue there and we were unable to do that this time. We ended up getting in this job market, 102 applicants in less than two weeks. We actually had to close the application uh, down. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. So of those 102 candidates, we went through separately, myself and Tess, our director of operations, and we sort of figured out, okay, who are the first set of people that we definitely want to talk to? We settled on, I think, 16 or 17 people, and we created an initial, we called it an initial interview. It wasn't really an interview per se. Every single one of those 16 people got a 30-minute Zoom call with me. And it was structured. I had a piece of paper in front of me with all of the talking points and everybody heard exactly the same thing. It was almost like a script. And it was about, this is the role. This is a history of the organization. This is where we see the organization going. What questions do you have about the role? And then this is the interview process and what you can expect through the entire process. And I went through every step and explained it in detail. What questions you have about the process? And then each person got one or two sort of very high level questions that came from their resume. Oh, I see that you owned a veterinary hospital. Tell me a bit about that. Those kinds of questions. 30 minutes on the nose, every single one of them, exactly 30 minutes, same exact script, same exact thing. At the end of the 30 minutes, every person got asked the same question. Would you like to move forward in the process? Everybody who said yes got to move forward. 16 of the 17 or 15 of the 16, whatever, said yes. The next step was we selected a journal article. I picked an article from, I think, 2020, a published peer-reviewed article from the Journal of Positive Psychology, and all remaining candidates, the 15 of them or whatever, got sent this article. This was explained to them beforehand, by the way. This was not like a surprise to them. They heard about it during that initial 30 minutes. They got the article. Their task was pretend you are a consultant with Flourish and you need to translate this article, the lessons from this study, and share it with a veterinary hospital manager in a way that they can apply in their practice. How would you do that? And how they got to do that was totally up to them. We got some people wrote like articles, a couple people recorded like a video. One person made a PowerPoint presentation and then recorded herself presenting it, like all different kinds of things. About half of the candidates, seven of them actually completed that activity. All seven people that completed the activity got a formal interview. By the way, that activity, there was a 10-day deadline, hard deadline. That we told everybody beforehand, you're going to have 10 days to do this. We will not make exceptions to the deadline. And I didn't see any of the submissions until the deadline. So deadline ended. Tess sent an email to everybody who hadn't responded. You know, sorry, the deadline has passed. And then she gave me access to all the submissions. So I saw them all at the same time. So to avoid bias that way too. We had a scoring matrix for each one. Tess and I scored each of those separately and did not see each other's scores. Then we had our question list for the first interview with a scoring matrix with that as well. We conducted one hour formal interviews with all seven candidates. Tess and I were on the call. Each of us scored each one of those interviews ourselves separately and did not see each other's scores. And we didn't show each other our scores until all seven interviews had been conducted. 
And then we did that. Everybody that was still in the process and we'd asked, do you want to stay in the process? They said, yes, they got to. All seven people did. They then got to take a growth mindset assessment online real quick, like three minute assessment. There were scores that came with that. And then they got a second interview. And the second interview was me and Tess asking just one or two of our own, just whatever subjective questions. And then 45 minutes for them to ask us anything that they wanted. At the end of the entire process, Tess and I each gave each candidate a, quote, gut score. We totaled up all the scores through the whole process and then ranked everybody. And then we talked about the ranking. We were not committed to just picking the person with the highest score. We wanted to talk through it. We did end up making an offer to the person with the highest score, but the difference in scores for the top like three or four candidates was like two points. I mean, it really wasn't very much at all in like a 150 point scale or something like that. So that was the process that we went through. It took two months. And then we made an offer to this candidate and she accepted and joined us last week. I feel like the interview process that we've created is going to be adjusted based on that. I actually really love some of the different pieces. I don't know if I would have it as detailed as that, but I can respect the amount of work that's done and what you get at the end of that. But that is incredible. I think one of the things that I do like is the idea that everyone gets the same initial 30 minute script conversation. And at first I was like, I don't know if I like that. But then I was like, no, actually that helps because then everyone hears the same thing. And then you can also make sure that mission, vision, culture, all that stuff gets out in the right exact way each time. So that then moving forward, you get the people that that buy in. So I do like that a lot. Yeah. So the very simplified version of the advice that we pulled from what Adam Grant basically talked about is that to maximize the effectiveness of a recruitment process, it's best to, number one, identify who will best succeed in this role. Not as much from skills. I mean, you want to consider the skills too, but also like the type of person, what personality traits, what values, who will succeed in this role, number one. Number two, how do we create a structure to objectively measure that and include multiple people? It's helpful if you get two, three, four different people involved in the process. So you have that quote unquote scoring matrix. You said, this is the type of person who's going to succeed. This is how we're going to try and measure that. And everybody scores that separately and you don't share the scores until the, the process is done. And then after that, those first two phases, then allow gut instinct to enter the process. Gut instinct is not invaluable. Where gut instinct becomes problematic is when we start to unintentionally rely on it at the beginning of the interview and recruitment process. We can be very much misled by our initial gut instinct on somebody. So try and set yourself up to be as objective as possible at the beginning part of the interview process. And then at the end, bring in your gut. Okay. These are the scores. These are the people. What did you think about this person? You know, and kind of talk through that. And the suggestion is that it, it makes the process more effective. I mean, this employee, Andy is her name, by the way, Andy Davison. She is absolutely phenomenal. We are so unbelievably excited to have her on the team. She's incredible. I cannot wait to introduce the whole community to her. And she you knows she's been with us a week. I mean, I don't know. In six months, she might decide this isn't really the right fit for her. And, and maybe this process didn't quite work out. But I think we're pretty hopeful that it did. Yeah, I think it puts the odds of success significantly more on your side. But yeah, anytime that you're a smaller business and you're hiring, each hire has a huge, huge impact as you grow from there because those first handful of people are going to drive how others come into the organization and how they interact as well. So 
that is awesome. And I appreciate you sharing in that much depth. I think one of the big challenges in veterinary medicine is just trying to find people and not having the massive amount of candidates that are beating down your door. It's more or less, how do I get someone interested to come here? But if we go kind of full circle, if you create the place that people want to be and take into the purpose, the path, the partnership, the psychological safety, you can then create that demand. And I've heard that in a couple of different interviews with people turning down candidates when most are struggling to get them because they are a employer of choice, which I know some people like that term and some people don't. But I had a number of different questions and it's wild how quickly time flies as we chat. But I wanted to ask another question to you. And that question being, what haven't I asked about that has you really excited right now? I'm so unbelievably excited to be able to expand our reach and how we can impact the community now that the team is growing. So, you know, it really kind of all boils down to that. I really do believe you talked about it a little yourself, this idea of psychological safety and the partnership and path and all those kinds of things. I really do believe that these are the kinds of things that can empower us to take what is already a pretty wonderful profession that's already contributing to the world in such important and beneficial ways and make it not just sustainable. I mean, I don't want us to just survive this work. I think that this is work that can really contribute to people's experience of thriving in life. And we have some pretty tangible, simple, and by the way, most of the time, totally free. All of these kinds of practices and behaviors, the vast majority of them don't cost a thing. And so it doesn't cost a thing to say to somebody, Isaiah, I really would love for you to learn how to do X. I want to set you up with this person to train you how to do it. You know, I'd like to make sure that you get this done, you know, in the next 30 days. I want to make sure that next month at this time that you feel like you've really mastered this skill. And then how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? None of what I said there costs any money. It just takes a couple minutes of time. But that's providing clarity. That's providing a little bit of autonomy. And that's giving people the opportunity to express their voice. And if we could just find small moments to do those kinds of things more in our practices, we're going to see people doing better. And it works. Like it's out there. I know that there are hospitals that are already doing this kind of stuff that are succeeding. I have a hospital in mind right now, one of our clients who, I got to be honest with you, I don't even know why they're a client because need us when they hired us. They were already doing most of this stuff, but we've been helping them kind of hone it and get a little bit better at it, which I think speaks to the kind of culture they have. Man, they just hired two new doctors last month. This is a small animal practice. They're nothing special. They don't like pay through the roof or anything. They're just a regular small animal hospital that just onboarded two new doctors last month. They've hired, I think like 15 or 20 technicians in the last two years. Like there are places that are doing well and people will find those places because they're sick and tired of having this work deplete them because that's not what it should do. So I guess that's the kind of, I'll get off my high horse now, but that's the kind of stuff that I get really jazzed about. No, I think that's a great example. And it's been interesting in conversations that I've, that I've had with owners in those running hospitals that feel across the board. Some are like, hey, I'm stretched so thin. I feel like I can't do this, but I know I need to. And it's like, it's a requirement to then get to that next stage. And it's challenging and it's hard and it does take a toll. But like you said, it doesn't cost anything to be able to do these things, but it's simple, but not easy, right? Like it's the same idea of like, it's not rocket science, some of the things that you've talked about, but man, is it hard to do and do consistently 
yeah. with the entire team when you are getting stretched in so many different directions. Yeah, I would encourage people two things. First of all, I completely get the sense of overwhelm. And I've been in hospitals that have caseloads, I mean, that are just unimaginable. And, you know, some of these specialty and emergency hospitals that are, you know, emergencies that are six, eight, 10 hour waits are just not taking cases in anymore because they're overwhelmed. I completely get that. My response to that would be, I hope it doesn't come across as dismissive. I hope it's actually empowering, but you can't afford to not do these things. The path that a lot of these practices are on saying like, I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time. That's not sustainable. And that's going to inevitably contribute to that hospital finding it harder and harder and harder to recruit and retain people to get that work done. So that's the first thing is, you know, we are on a precipice in our profession and it is time that we embrace that we need to invest now in something that's going to have a long-term return instead of focusing on the short term. The second thing that I would add to that is that I would encourage people when we think of words like consistency, which are important words, we check ourselves and we challenge the way that we think about those things in healthy and productive ways. I think it is far better to pursue excellence than perfection. Excellence allows us to be consistent in a way that means that, you know what? The last couple of days, I was really good at checking in with my team. And today I just have too much to do or I'm not feeling at my best and I'm not going to do as good a job. And that's okay because I'll do it tomorrow. And that the overall trajectory is good, right? It's not perfect, but it's definitely very good. Perfection, it can be really easy to fall into the perfection trap of, I don't have time. I'm not doing it. If I can't do it right, I can't do it all the time. I may as well not do it at all. And that's a very deflating and defeating kind of mentality. So pursue excellence over perfection. I love that. Is that something that you have read that others have published? Is that an original Josh? I just have to ask because I love that. To be honest with you, it's entirely possible. I probably heard that from like Brene Brown or somebody. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't want to take credit as an original Josh, but it is definitely informed the way that I think a lot lately. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with swiping, which is stealing with integrity and pride and kind of repurposing things. Original yes. thought sometimes is really tough. So I love that. So thank you for that little nugget here at the end. Last thing, and I didn't prep you for this, but <laughs> one of the things that I've done is I've started to kind of close shows with allowing guests to ask questions to me. If there's anything that they want to know, nothing's off limits. We just kind of chat and sometimes it opens up random things of yeah. all kinds of fun. And sometimes it's more serious, but it can be anything in between. But is there anything that you would like to know or have any questions for me to chat through? I do have a question for you. I'm going to pose it in one of two ways because sometimes it seems to land differently on people with the different wording. So option number one for you, Isaiah, is tell me about a time recently when you really felt like the work you do mattered. Another way to think about that would be tell me about a time recently, Isaiah, when you had an experience at work that felt very meaningful to you. Ooh. I have a really good example and this is fun because I was telling my wife about this. So a uh, client that worked with um, connected a long time ago, said that she wanted to work together and then it kind of like just faded. And I was like, I'm not going to chase and like beat down her door to try to work together. It's fine. Right. Resurfaced, had a conversation. She had moved across the country with a relationship that was a long-term relationship that failed. Then she okay. had moved home, took a different job. It was better than the job that she was at before, but is in vet med and like could not find the right fit. Then was like, okay, I'm tired of being where I'm at at home. This was kind of a good place to like recharge. And so she moved again, halfway across the country to go be with friends in a new environment. Well, 
in our kind of like third meeting, we do what's called like a discovery, which is like, what are we solving for? And what from a qualitative perspective matters to you? And as we talk through things, it was, you know, I kind of ask, and sometimes it is super personal, but it was like, I could kind of tell that for her long-term, she really, for her to have like a success in her eyes of what she wanted life to look like was to have a spouse and have kids. And like that kind of all felt like it was taken away. And so she cried like, and it was kind of uncomfortable because again, it's a virtual call and you, I had gotten to know her enough where I knew it was hard. So just had a call last week. She's like, Hey, life updates. So has been great with the move, has a new job as well. And then that's been a little while, but it's been awesome. And I think it's a perfect fit for her, but she's engaged. And so she just told us that she was like, absolutely beaming. And so the first thing I was like, that's amazing. A, want to meet him and chat through and get to know each other and all that stuff. And that's so exciting. But I was like, the stuff that I had like for our meeting doesn't matter because a lot of life is changing. Let's talk about that. And so it was really cool. And I kind of explained to my wife and again, she doesn't necessarily know who this would be because there's enough people where it's like, Hey, this person, this thing happened. And I was like, it was just really cool because it couldn't happen to someone that I don't know. People say that all the time. I couldn't have someone better, but she is just such a sweet individual and a great person that it was like, she deserves this. Life has been hard for her over the course of the last couple of years. And this is really cool to see. I don't know if it's nothing Isaiah did, right? (laughs) But it was like, this was just really cool to see some of the different decisions and things that have happened. And yeah, it was just cool. My takeaway from that was that the work that you do as a financial advisor, doing those kinds of things, gave you the opportunity to meet this person who, you know, it was kind of hit or miss in terms of like actually working together for a while, but it did inevitably turn into working with her. But more importantly, it turned into really connecting with this human being in a meaningful way so that you took an interest in her life and her life path. And she had sort of achieved some things that were really important to her and shared it with you. Just the fact that she would share that with you and be able to celebrate that kind of really big moment in her life meant something to you. And what a cool way to connect with another person. That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I always joke. I get to vicariously live through a lot of really very interesting people doing a lot of cool stuff where I'm not medically inclined, but uh, (laughs) I get to interact with all these successful veterinary professionals around doing really cool, amazing things. And yeah, it really is amazing to where you build relationships with people and get to know like what actually matters to them. And it's a really cool and humbling profession at times when done correctly. And that's one thing that I think there's a lot of really good and I have peers around the country that do awesome work in other areas. And I'm just like, they do great work. This is who you should work with if you're, you know, XYZ person. But again, then there's also people that have that title that aren't the greatest and you know you have this reputation so it's hard but it's one of those things where there's a lot of meaning behind the work that is done and i think going back to the idea of like purpose and matters some things that you talked about like you feel that and you start to be able to see that there are people that have tremendous skill that sometimes they don't have the interest level in an area that maybe i do that i do enjoy this one thing that maybe they don't but you can kind of compliment come alongside and like have these little things where they're able to accomplish it it's like wow that's really cool if you play a small part in that, that's just kind of neat. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Thanks for indulging that question. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, well, it's good because it like literally just had happened last week. So this is like a perfect timing for that question. So it was very, very recent. As we close, first thing, I'm going to make sure that we have a link to the survey that you talked about earlier, because everyone should take it that's listening to this. Awesome. Where else can people reach out, connect, follow along with content or things along with you and Flourish in general? 
Yeah, so you can find us online at flourish.vet, F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H dot V-E-T. We're also on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn. I'm personally on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, and I routinely speak all around the country too. So uh, there's always opportunities to, if you can deal with hearing my rambling voice for a while, uh, there's always opportunities for that too. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time. This was great. As always, I really appreciate it, Josh. Yeah, it's a real honor, Isaiah. Appreciate you so much. Thanks for having me on the show again. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.